Okay. It is now on, which we, we needed for the word. Verse 1, After these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And this next portion, these next couple of verses, were added later. They're not in the original manuscript. In verse 3 again, Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And then this is back to the more older or more original type manuscripts. Verse 5, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. That's a long time, isn't it? When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately, immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was a Sabbath on that day. If some of you have watched The Chosen, I have watched it probably ten times, maybe. Uh, one of my favorite episodes is the story of Jesse, the man who's by the Pool of Bethesda, where he gets healed. I, every time I see God healing someone, there's a visual depiction of it, a story of God touching somebody to heal them. My heart is just stirred. He's healed me a multitude of times in my lifetime. And I'm sure many of you have testimonies of how God has stepped in to heal you. But how glorious it is when God just touches us that way and we know that kind of grace is upon us. It is a holy thing when He touches these earthen bodies. Now, if we go back and look at the beginning, verse 1, after these things, what are the these things that it's speaking of? Remember last week we looked at chapter 4, which had to do with uh, the woman of Samaria how her life was radically changed there at the well. Then the Samaritans had revival as they met Jesus. Not just hearing the woman's story, but their lives were radically changed. Then the healing of a nobleman's son. And so we're seeing these stories of Jesus revealing himself even by the display of supernatural power. Remember, Jesus only did that which he saw the Father doing. We're going to see that. And so God's desire, God's will, was to see these people touched physically, even to declare His glory in such a tangible, real way to us in human vessels. These human vessels, that we would know God is among us. God is powerfully moving among us. So after these things, there was a feast probably, um, and there were several feasts, uh, the main feast, Passover is probably the one that's referred to here. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He always goes up to Jerusalem. There's always that sense of going up there. Now, there is in Jerusalem this, a sheep gate. By the sheep gate, a pool. Now, if we were to go to Jerusalem today, we could find what is known as the Pool of Bethesda. Now, Bethesda itself means 
house, Beth is house, and then Hesed is, is mercy or grace. And so this is a house of mercy. And this particular pool had been established maybe a thousand BC when some of the Jews dammed up a ravine and formed an initial pool. It was very deep. Later they came back and added some other uh, pools to it. So it was like a, in this case, five porticos. If you can see that as a, maybe a porch with columns and a roof. And so it was a, a beautiful, neat setting. And it became known as a place where people could receive the grace, the mercy of God, even to be healed. Now that may sound far-fetched to us, but do you know that there are places like that right here in Central Texas and West Texas? Before antibiotics and penicillin, people many times were desperate to, to be healed any way they could. So in Marlin, Texas, you know about perhaps the, uh, the mineral baths that used to be there. Conrad Hilton, who was born in Cisco, Texas, and established his first chain of hotels in Cisco, his eighth Hilton Hotel was in Marlin, Texas. Why? Because so many people in the 1920s were going to Marlin, Texas to be healed. They were looking for some answer to their health need. And so spas just boomed all over Marlin, Texas. And he established his eighth hotel. He's the, he is the establisher of the international hotel chain. The first international hotel chain was established by Conrad Hilton. And so he put his eighth hotel right there across from one of these spas where people would go and get these mineral baths. And so that was right here next door to us where people would come seeking some sort of healing from the minerals that were in the water. Have you been, have you been to Mineral Wells, Texas? Have you all been there before? I had an event out there not too long ago, and you drive into Mineral Wells, which is a town of about, now it's about 14,800 people, near 15,000 people, small town. But when you drive into the city, there is this huge Baker Hotel. I mean, it is the landmark in Mineral Wells. It's the first thing you see, and it's just like, what is this in this little bitty town? Because back in the 1920s, again, they discovered that there were minerals in the water there and some people who were drinking the water in Mineral Wells, Texas felt like they were being cured. And so Baker was hired by the city of Mineral Wells and he was an established builder. There's a Baker Hotel in Dallas, one in Fort Worth. And so in 1922, finishing it in 1929, they built the Baker Hotel, 450 rooms and the the first in Texas hotel to have a swimming pool. And people would go there to swim in that mineral water pool to have their skin ailments cured and to have their body healed. And so you say, oh, this is crazy to see this. People waiting 38 years, finding themselves by a pool, hoping the waters will be stirred so there can be healing. Texans have done that in our history. We've done the very same thing by going to these places where we think this mineral water will help us. But who is the real healer? Jesus. The Lord Jesus. And it's believed, these, these people believe that an angel stirred up the water. There was probably some sort of mineral bath or something there, minerals that helped the skin, that helped some of them with their ailments. And, and yet, there was a man who'd been there, not necessarily by the pool the whole time, 
but a man who had been there for 38 years. Verse 6, it says, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. How did he know he had been in that condition a long time? We say, well, he was the son of God. The word that's used in the Greek for know is gnosko. That's different than oida, which is just knowledge. This is relational knowledge. It makes me think that perhaps Jesus, who had been in Jerusalem at times, had seen this man before. You know, if you were to see somebody laying on the sidewalk, begging, and you pass them, would you remember them? We quite possibly would. So somehow he knew this man, even relationally, in the spirit, maybe through God's giving him understanding, a knowledge, supernatural knowledge of this man. He knew that he'd been in that condition a long time. And he said to him, do you wish to get well? Let's look at this passage and consider the fact that Jesus, even today, is the hope for the hopeless. If you know people today who've become hopeless over their physical condition, financial conditions, relational conditions, mental condition, we need to recognize that Jesus loves them and has the same power to touch the hopeless today like he did back then. And this generation, you guys who are Gen Zers, you are a hopeless generation. Because of what you've gone through, because of what you've experienced in our culture, there are more people in this generation who've probably considered suicide than maybe any other generation. Because they've run into so many obstacles in life. They've been isolated so long that it's very easy for this generation to just give up. And what I'm seeing, and I, I run into people from this generation all the, all the time, especially 19-year-old men. For some reason, God keeps putting me in the path of 19-year-old men, and they're hopeless. I ran into one at Kane's Chicken in Hewitt the other day. He had uh, the Grim Ripper tattooed on his arm, had devil tattoos on his other arm. And I, I just began to ask him questions. I said, has has anybody in your lifetime, he went to Midway High School, just graduated, now he's selling chicken full-time, working for chicken. I said, has anybody in your lifetime ever shared with you about how to have a relationship with Jesus? He said, no. A 19-year-old in Midway, Texas, going to Midway High School, and never in his life has anybody stepped into his path to share with him the hope of Jesus. As I talked to him, I could just sense and feel his hopelessness. It's like, what is there to life other than struggle? And I tell you, the devil wants to gobble up this generation just like Jesus wants to save this generation. And so here's a guy with, you know, devil tattoos on his arm, and the devil will reach that generation if we don't. The devil will do everything he can to try to convince this generation that there is no hope. And yet when this generation begins to hear about Jesus, doors just fling open. Amen. Not too long ago this summer, I was 
doing some riding, and I looked out my window from my office and saw a guy pull up in a true green truck. And God just said, you need to go talk to him. And I went out. He was 19 years old. He was living with a lady in another city. He already had two children at 19, expecting a third. The lady he was living with in an unmarried way was expecting a child. And he was just out there doing everything he could to make money to support this family he had. And you could just see hopelessness all over his face. You could just feel it just flowing from him. And so I went out, and he just, he came right over to me. It's like the Spirit just drew him right to me. And I began to speak into his life the fact that there is hope in Jesus. And Jesus wants to have a relationship with you that will change everything in your life. And God set this young man up because his mother, who had been lost for a long time, had come to know Christ. Not too long before that. And her life radically changed before his eyes. And yet he had not made any decision to start a relationship with Christ. And I said, you can do that today. You can begin a relationship with Christ today. He said, let me think about it. While I, while I spray this yard, let me think about that. So I let him go and he sprayed the yard. And I went in and got a Bible. Uh, Kyle Martin, who's worked with students at Baylor, who's a biblical evangelist, he has a little Martin New Testament. I grabbed it and I, and I watched him. And when he rolled up his, his hose, I went outside again and just stood by my mailbox across the street from him thinking, will he truly come back to make that decision for Christ? And it was so exciting. And then he walked back over. He said, I don't have much time. I said, it won't take long for you to begin a relationship with Christ. And I explained how that works, explained the scripture of how you can start a relationship today. And so right there at the curb in the street, this 19-year-old gave his heart to Christ, opened up his life. Jesus. Later that week, another hopeless 22-year-old from Austin, Texas, came to my door. Now, at this point, I'm thinking, God, would you just keep sending these young men? Send them to my door. <laughs> he was hopeless. Same setting, same description, same heart, hopeless, no hope whatsoever. And, when I, and he wasn't even supposed to be at my door. He was just simply sitting in his truck while his partner who was, who was doing something with these uh, solar panels or something on a roof, he said, you know, I'm just sitting here. I think I'll just go see if I can maybe drum up some business or something. And he came to my house. <laughs> he wasn't even supposed to be there. But God led him to the door, and it was so exciting to encounter another hopeless 22-year-old. And when I shared about the Jesus who cares for the hopeless... He just opened up his heart the same way. Started a relationship with Jesus. And I called then a friend in Austin who was going to connect him with a church in Austin just to follow up on him. All around us, there are people just like this man at the pool of Bethesda. And what are we doing? If we are silent about the Jesus who brings hope, we will be... missing the opportunity to see another generation experience Jesus in might and power. My exhortation to all of us, because we all as Christians who have the Spirit of God living within us, we are to be the feet and the mouths and the hands of Jesus. And just like Jesus came into this setting and He had compassion 
for the helpless, as he loved the hopeless, which is what this man was, we have the opportunity to be Jesus' hands and feet today, to step into the midst of those lives and to say, God loves you. And God wants to have a relationship with you that's real, that will change your life. And I want to challenge you to start doing that. In Gen Z years here, probably 50% of the people, if some of you go to Baylor, some may go to TSTC or MCC, at Baylor probably conservative thought is that 50% are lost. Or as the students I work with say, they're behind the religious wall where they've experienced the traditions of the church and they've plugged into the church and all of its traditions, but they don't know Jesus. They don't have an intimate love relationship with Him. And the students I've talked to who are passionate for Jesus said, we'll just go over the wall to get them. We'll go over that religious wall and we'll love them into the kingdom. And that's happening right now, but adults, we get to do that too. Amen. As this old granddad was blessed and God brought me some young ones, to the door, we can do the same and step into the path of somebody that's helpless and hurting. 38-year-old folks. I tell you, this guy was he, was, he was struggling. Can you imagine what it'd be like to be a 38-year-old beggar? Waiting for the stirring of the waters but no longer able to get there. And when Jesus asked him, would, would you like to be healed? And why did Jesus ask that question? Why do you think Jesus asked that question? Why? Do you want to be healed? Jesus is always looking for faith. He's always looking for people who are hopeless, who will say, I'm willing to believe. I believe that you can heal me. Simple question, do you want to be well? When Jesus finds a heart that says, I want to change. I want to be different. I don't want to stay where I am in my hopeless, helpless state. God calls those individuals quickly unto himself. And I think that's what he was soliciting. He was soliciting faith from this man who had been 38 years in his sickness, and so the question, do you wish to get well? Just imagine what that man must have thought. Can life ever be different for me? If you'd been stuck for 38 years, how hard that must be. I wanna just mention too how great God is, because immediately it says this man was healed. He stood up, took up his mat, and did what? He walked. He walked. Do you realize how great a healing that was? What happens if you don't use a muscle for 38 years? What happens? You got into atrophies, where it is no more. God, through Jesus, and the powerful touch that he placed on this man, healed him completely so that the muscles that had atrophied had to have been restored. I mean, we we just, just pause and think about that. No muscle, muscle. It's like Jesus gave him enough muscle to stand. How about balance? If you hadn't stood for 38 years on your own feet, 
your balance probably would have been, sometimes I get out of bed in the morning and my balance is off, <laughs> you know. He'd been down for 38 years. And so God restored his balance. Where he was able to bend over, pick up his mat, and walk. Now, the next lesson that comes in this chapter is a story about legalism. You remember what he encountered as he was leaving with his mat? Who did he encounter? Some of the Jews were there. And they said, don't you know that you're not supposed to labor or carry anything on the Sabbath? I went back this week in the Old Testament and looked and in the law. You know, certainly there were prohibitions of working on the Sabbath. You weren't to carry loads, into, especially into the temple area, uh, on the Sabbath. Uh, God wanted people just to give that day to Him to rest in him, to remember the great work that he had done. And so these Jews looked at him and they said, man, what are you doing carrying a load on the Sabbath? Jesus. is the one who moves us out of legalism. And our time's about up today. I mean, there's so much that we could say. We could spend 10 weeks on this chapter alone. Did you know that? We could. But let me just share this word. If you have experienced legalism like I have, during that 10-year period where I struggled, you know what I resorted to? Legalism. That's how I satisfied that God-given desire for approval from Him. If we're not walking in the Spirit, our flesh will resort us right back to legalism. Or all of a sudden, it's just, am I keeping the rules? Am I, am I doing what is right? Am I, am I pleasing God with my labor? When all the while, you know what God's looking for? He's looking for intimacy. He's not looking for just a, a rigid Pharisee. I keep the rules. And that's what this poor man encountered. He encountered somebody who was just legalistic in their thinking, saying, what are you doing? carrying a mat, the love and the compassion of Jesus surpassed that because he saw relationships instead of a traditional manner of life where you just keep rules, a legalistic type of life. We still suffer from legalism here today, y'all. Yeah. And it kills churches. If the life of Jesus is not present and legalism is what controls it, the people that said, don't scratch our pews, that's a very legalistic mindset. They failed to see this person that was lost, but now is found. And that man plugged into the church. He just got active. So he kept scratching the pews, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't think he ever scratched a pew, honestly even though he did have studs on his belt and rings and tattoos and everything, bushy, big bushy hair. He was a real hippie. Highland Baptist Church. If we're going to support this next generation that's seeking God for revival, we've got to take our legalistic hands off of them. And we've got to say, Go for Jesus. Amen. Be bold in what He tells you to do. And don't get stuck in rules like we have. Okay? I just love you guys. I love both generations I'm looking at right now. 
And if you're struggling in any way to think that you have to work to please God instead of receiving His approval out of an intimate love relationship and by grace, please lay it down and let the Spirit guide you into the morality and the walk before God that pleases Him. You can't do it in your own power anyway. That's what those legalists think they can do is somehow in their own strength please God. And it always ends in failure. I had to go back to two churches and ask forgiveness for pastoring them from a legalistic perspective. And I remember sitting in my office and I was condemning people in my mind because they were not walking according to the biblical standards that I was working hard to maintain. And you see that type of mindset, it affects everything. And so when I went back and I just humbled myself broken before those two churches and we almost had revival. Because as they saw me repent, they started repenting. And they started being broken and humble. I wish I could speak, have more time to share about this chapter. Please read it again. And we, we're almost out of time at our tables. I want to ask you to do this at your table. Would you please take just a few minutes and would you pray for the next generation? Would you pray that the Spirit of God would protect them from legalism that they would seek an intimacy with God that's real and supernatural and divine, and that they would not be afraid to walk filled with the Spirit of God, to manifest His giftings, and to pray for the miraculous. This last week, I, I met with the prayer leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention in Nashville, and I left extremely burdened because of the 47,000 churches that represent Southern Baptist Convention in the U.S., many are still functioning without the intimacy and the power of the Holy Spirit being alive and released in their midst. Without loving Jesus. Would you pray for the Southern Baptist Convention as well today? That God would ignite more churches to not be legalistic, but just to walk with an overflow of God's anointed presence in their lives. And uh, maybe we can share more later sometime uh, along these same things. I'm going to give you a preview. I'm, I'm supposed to teach, I think, again on chapter 8. Chapter 8 is all about the rest of this chapter. Okay? So it'll be covered next time I teach. Is that okay, Reuben? <laughs> Y'all need? And uh, we'll come back and probably refer to both next time we stand before you. But let's pray at our tables.